Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the philosopher Russell Blackford. Russell is a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle in Australia. He is the author of many books, uh, a public speaker and debater, a literary critic, and a legal scholar. And today I spoke to him about his new book uh, that he edited with Damien Broderick called Philosophy's Future. And we also touch uh, very briefly his newest book, um, which you can order now, The Tyranny of Opinion. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I thought talking to Russell was um, incredibly valuable. We spoke about the future of academic philosophy, um, the pitfalls with it, the upsides to it, um, the dangers of um, you know popular psychology or popular philosophy, rather, and... Um, and all of you know those things that are you know concerning to someone like me trying to go into the field, and I think it's interesting to um, just general fans of philosophy as well. So, with that introduction, please enjoy my chat with Russell Blackford. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, to picking your brain uh, this <laughs> e- this evening for me, and I guess this afternoon for you, right? Yeah, it's it's just gone two o'clock. Yep. Okay. Two p.m. If I seem off to any uh, regular listeners, it's because it's uh, midnight my time. Um, we were doing this across the world, so <laughs> so thank you uh, once again, Russell, for uh, for being here. Yeah, pleasure. So you are just for people who don't know, and I'll give you a proper introduction before we start. You're a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and also an author, public speaker, debater, uh, literary critic, and legal scholar. A, uh, a very wide ranging. Uh, um, job description you have. I guess that's all true. I've got all that, that background. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I did practice law for a while. I, I mean, a lot of my career has been in you know, sort of law and government and public policy, rather than rather than in academia. Mm. And that's interesting. I want to get into the the sort of interdisciplinary approach um, to philosophy. Um, but before we do that, I should say that we are um, mainly going to be discussing. Uh, the edited volume that you and Damien Broderick uh, put together. It's called Philosophy's Future. Um, it's about the problem of philosophical progress. But you've also just come out with a new book, uh, right, The Tyranny of Opinion. Uh, yeah, the, the Tyranny of Opinion, which I'll... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's the newest book that came out, actually, late 2018, but it's got a 2019 mm. date on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as often happens, a book comes out late in the year. So, so yeah, sure. sure. So, so yeah, that's the newest book. I'm I'm working on another book about um, radical enhancement, technology, radical oh. human enhancement, which is a bit delayed at the moment, like a lot of other publishing projects, you know, yeah. for, for obvious reasons. But sure. the, the book is delivered and in production. It's just going to take a bit longer coming out. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there will be work to do. You know, there'll be proofing. There'll probably be some small emendations as we go. But it's basically done. Mm. That's that's. Uh, I really look forward to that book. Um, but to circle back around to the the book we're currently discussing, um, I'm curious what uh, what went into the inspiration um, between you and Damien to to actually put together 
this um, uh, book of collected essays about philosophy's future? That's a great question because I, I really don't have a super concise, you know, good answer for you. Damien and I have been friends for a very long time and at the time we put that book proposal together, we had just done a book which we co-edited uh, with Wiley Blackwell, the same publisher, uh, which was about, well, it was called um, Intelligence Unbound, the Future of Uploaded and Machine Minds, right? So it was about machine intelligence, basically, and the prospects uh, for machine intelligence which reflects that we both have a long background in, in science fiction and in thought about the future. That's all a little bit tangential, except to say that Damien and I have a very long-standing uh, relationship uh, you know, as friends and collaborators, and we were looking around for what the next project might be, because that project went quite well. Mm. Uh, we brainstormed all sorts of possible ideas. <laughs> the, the fact is, this is the one we came up with, but... It is a fascinating question, you know, once you start looking at, at philosophy in any way, um, Damien has perhaps a slightly less professional connection with philosophy than I do, though he does have a philosophical background, among other things. There is this long-standing question that arguably philosophy doesn't seem to, to get anywhere. <laughs> it goes around in circles. Um, we still don't know whether God exists as far as, as, far as the consensus in philosophy Sure. And tell us. So that was the issue that we hit upon as, you know, a kind of big meta question about yeah. philosophy, uh, which we would like, if not answered definitively, at least to get, get views on. And, you know, and having just edited a book together, uh, we, we thought that we could do this. And, and so we did. We put the book proposal uh, and the proposal was met with some enthusiasm that went back and forth. And we ended up with a very good selection of people who are prepared to write about it. So, so that's the story. That, that's not, a, as I say, a super <laughs> snappy, um, oh, yeah, it was this thing that inspired us. But, sure, yeah. But, you know, it, it was a very interesting project for a couple of people who had worked on a similar project uh, you know, not, not long before. Mm. I was curious if it was some, you know, long-standing and deep-rooted frustration that you had with, uh, with you know, someone or some institution or something. Oh, no, nothing like that, nothing like that. But there's a frustration about philosophy itself mm, that yeah. we don't seem to progress in the way that the scientists do, or, or the scientists certainly have for, let's say, the past 400 years and, and increasingly so. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I'm, I'm very curious because it's, it's obviously relevant to the topic of the book, but what made you interested in actually doing philosophy as a profession instead of just being interested in it? Um, again, it's a very hard question. You know, I have this theory that we often don't know our own motivations all that well. Mm. <laughs> so when people ask me those sorts of questions... Uh, you might not be in the best position to know. But even kind of as a matter of principle, I think it's hard to answer those, those sorts of questions. But I've always found whatever I've been involved in, whatever I've studied, that I've been driven back into taking interest in the philosophy of it. You know, when I was studying law, I became very interested in jurisprudence. You know, when I was studying literature, I became very interested in, you know, the the sort of philosophical questions that surround literature, you know, what is literature, how is it structured, what's, what's its origins, is it the same thing everywhere in the world, whatever, that, those, those sorts of questions. But 
my mind seems to work in such a way that I can study anything at all and I'll be driven back to philosophical questions about it. <laughs> However much I may be fascinated just by the substantive subject matter, I will start being fascinated by those questions. Mm. So, so that's kind of a big picture uh, approach to how I got interested in philosophy. It wasn't something that I originally studied in like my first year of my first university degree. You know, it was something that I found myself increasingly interested in at that time in which I you know, kept coming back to increasingly took up over a long period of years. So my first PhD is actually in English literature, not in philosophy. Uh, I did a philosophy PhD much later in life. Hmm. I actually wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting. And right, you did so your PhD at Monash, is that right? Uh, I did my yeah, the PhD in philosophy at Monash. Okay, okay. Yeah. So what I'm just sort of curious because it, it seems, um, you know, you're obviously based in Australia now and and you did your Ph.D. in Australia. Uh, what what sort of, you know, I, I'm curious if if, you know, <clears throat> from someone inside the the academy, do you see philosophy worldwide as one collective community or do you see it as sort of more, you know, geographical pockets of different communities that sometimes collaborate? Then again, it's a very good question because I, I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I mean, even the famous division between, you know, the analytic uh, school, if you like, of philosophy and the continental school, if there's such a single thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty apparent. And, yeah, there's been a certain almost hostility, certain, a, a certain distrust or suspicion between those two so-called mm -hmm. Uh, schools and that, that kind of divide, let alone before you get to, you know, say, the Indian tradition or the, the Chinese tradition or, or whatever else it might be that you think, you know, as a, as a civilization, um, you know, created a tradition of philosophy. Those, those two civilizations certainly did, as I suppose did the, you know, the, the medieval Islamic civilization, although it, um, notoriously picked up you know, on the philosophical traditions of you know, parts of the world that conquered you know, the, the Greek tradition, uh, Greek and Roman tradition. So it's very difficult to say that there is yeah, just, just, just one thing here and some of the interconnections, some of the interconnections between those traditions are pretty slight. Some historically have been much stronger. I mean, you know, we uh, as the Latin West, or Latin Christen, Christendom, if you want, we got a lot of our knowledge of Greek philosophy uh, through Islamic Spain. Uh, mm. you know? So there have been all of those kinds of connections and divisions historically. Uh, right now, even within the Anglosphere, you know, there's... There are disconnections. I mean, if you look at what's published in the most prominent um, journals, you know, Synthes, Mind, whatever they are, we could probably come up with a list of 10 yeah. journals that are thought of as the, the leading general analytic philosophy journals. The fact is there are a lot of very important philosophers who were not publishing in those journals. That's not where they had their claim to fame. I mean, I don't know if... 
John Rawls ever published something <laughs> in one of those journals, but and maybe he did at some point. But but from the point of view of looking at those journals, you'd say maybe David Lewis was the most important philosopher of the late 20th century, right? Mm. But I wouldn't want to say that David Lewis was the most important philosopher in the Anglosphere in the late 20th century. I don't know who that would be, but it might be someone like John Rawls or Martha Nussbaum. You know, it's, so it is a very complicated situation. Uh, and, and as soon as you go over across the English Channel, you start to look at a whole different batch of people. You know. mm. um, it, it would be very difficult to say that David Lewis is a more important figure than Jürgen Habermas. Sure. Or Derrida. Or, yeah. It yeah. becomes very difficult. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I really I didn't have, you know, an answer in mind when I asked that. Um, I just realized, you know, in, in sort of preparing for this episode that, you know, obviously I, um, I, you know, I kind of don't have a lot of say in the matter of what I happen to read. Like I've I've never really read a primary work of of an Indian philosopher, you know, like you mentioned. Right. Yeah. And I just, you know, it always makes me kind of question, you know, well, what am I missing there? Um, I, you know, we all think that we kind of have this broad range of diet in our, you know, intellectual life. And I, I just, I wasn't really sure. It's almost impossible to sort of, you know, know what you're missing in that sense. It is. And look, I haven't really read into what is currently being produced by philosophers in India, right? I, I have yeah. done some formal study along the way of yeah, classical Indian philosophy. I can't say I've read an entire lengthy work, but I have you know, looked at Shankara's argument about the existence of the spiritual self, which, uh, you know, and, and other such arguments that were produced by that tradition, you know, they produced arguments similar to, to Descartes, you know, mm -hmm. before Descartes. You know, that, that, that's, that's an interesting thing to discover when you delve back into that tradition. But as for keeping up with Indian philosophy, what it is now, well, I don't really know. Uh, because I have an interest in law, and and I'm interested in sort of high constitutional law questions that that come up, mm. I will occasionally look at the you know, the high constitutional, very theoretical cases that arise in other jurisdictions, and, and it's interesting there. You know, I, I had occasion to read a case from the Supreme Court of India a year or two back, uh, which was actually about issues to do with recognition of transgender people in, in certain contexts, right? But they were quoting people like Rawls. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, so it circles So back you can here. find those connections, but it would be fascinating tracing them through more closely. Mm, that's funny. So I, I have um, in front of me some notes that I, that I kind of wrote down while going through the book, and I want to get into them, but I think it's, it's really important to first say that, um, you know, I think that when people... Um, like yourself and like the the contributors to this book, um, you know, write these critiques of philosophy. I think it's it's always coming from, and and of course, like my interest in it is coming from a place of absolute love and adoration of philosophy, right? Like we yeah. criticize it because we want mm. it to improve, mm. not because we want to tear it down. In any sure. way, yeah. Sure. We criticize so, lots of things because we love them. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And I think, you know, that gets maybe a little bit lost in the current day. I don't think we're very good at, uh, at always criticizing the things we love. Um, so this, the book uh, has a pretty wide span of opinion um, between, you know, defenses of, of philosophy and critiques of it. Um, 
So currently, I, I'm curious, where do you fall on that spectrum of being a staunch defender or a critic? And um, did actually, you know, editing this book push you in either direction? I don't think it pushed me in either direction. It maybe left me more confused than ever <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> I mean, in, in my introductory piece, you know, I talk about all of the various um, chapters or articles in there and I make comments on them, though I want them to stand for themselves rather than just determining who's right. But, but you know, there were themes that came out and a lot of them that you can identify and agree with, like the importance of not having, you know, interdisciplinary silos in philosophy. Maybe we do need to look more, yeah. more carefully at what each other are doing and there's also interdisciplinary silos. Maybe we need to be, you know, a little bit more prepared to, you know, relate to people from other disciplines entirely who have something to say that's of interest. And although this didn't really come up much in the book, you know, even other philosophical traditions, right? I mm -hmm. mean, this book mm -hmm. is pretty much written from the point of view of Anglophone analytic philosophers, pretty much. You know, I can think of at least one exception, but, mm. but, but it is pretty much from that tradition. But, but that comes up as a bit of a theme through the book. But as for whether we want to defend philosophy or whether we want to be highly critical of it. Well, look, there are reasons why we might be very critical. It's, it's possible that a lot of what gets written uh, is dealing with topics that have been exhausted hmm. or which are very tangential to what ordinary people really care about, which might be what's the nature of the good life or hmm. you know, what on a large scale is a kind of cosmos that we, we live in rather than, say, very um, technical issues like yet another take on the Gettier. <laughs> you know, I had that as an example, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, 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 look, arguably you can criticise a lot of philosophy for being you know, not responsive to what made people care about philosophical issues in the first place, for becoming inaccessible, becoming in-groupish, uh, over technical, those sorts of issues. I think there's some force in those sorts of criticisms. And when Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay and their contribution to the book, yeah, make, make those sorts of criticisms among others, I think they do have a point that, yeah, they've, they've probably produced some negative reaction out there from, from people who've read it, though I haven't seen much reaction to that particular essay. I think the only um, reaction I have seen was pretty positive. But, but still, that would raise hackles. Mm. So there's some force in that. Um, I think there's also a question that I believe that some of the philosophical questions, some of the very big philosophical questions, do have answers uh, that I find convincing and arguments that I think are fairly, yeah, fairly much conclusive. Um, on, say, a question like, is morality objectively binding on us or is there a morality that's objectively binding on us? I think the answer to that is clearly no. But mm. that's a very counterintuitive answer. It's, it's an answer that, you know, people are very resistant to. 
Uh, Michael Smith somewhere says that you know, moral error theory should be a last resort. Well, I'm not sure it should be a last resort if you could stand back from the issues. Mm. But but you can see why you know, people are socialised in a way that makes anything like moral error theory or moral scepticism uh, pretty counterintuitive and pretty worrying. And I must say, I would not like philosophy as a discipline to achieve some sort of consensus tomorrow that mm. it, that's true and that all the arguments against it uh, are just wrong. You know, I, I have even almost a temperamental resistance to that. So, th so there's this question. We, we might be able to reach answers and arguments for them that are actually correct. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly we can reach answers on some of these questions that satisfy me. <laughs> but is it still premature or risky or in some way just contrary to the spirit of the discipline yeah, to, to say, okay, we've now achieved consensus on those things, say, tomorrow. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe we should let the argument go on longer with some of those sorts of questions, no matter how satisfied I am. Now, that's all a bit rambling and a bit confused because I feel a bit rambling and confused about <laughs> that. But it's something that came up very strongly in my mind when I was writing my, you know, my introduction to the book that, yeah, okay, what would it mean to achieve consensus? on an issue like that. What does it mean, not just from a disciplinary point of view, but what does it mean socially if you've got an academic discipline now claiming with all the authority that an academic discipline has that you know, some, some answer on a question like that is now known and we now know that God exists or we now know that God doesn't exist or mm -hmm. we now know that you know, morality is not something that's actually binding on us. It's a kind of illusion up to a point. That might be a useful one. You know, we now know that libertarian free will doesn't exist, say, or we now know that it yeah. does. Well, what would it mean socially for an academic discipline to claim to have reached a kind of disciplinary consensus on that? You know, that's a question that doesn't arise in the same way or, or very seldom arises in the same way in the sciences. You know, maybe it did to some extent with evolutionary theory mm. uh, or back in Galileo's time with heliocentrism. But, but by and large, those sorts of questions where something very you know, existentially important to people is at stake, you know, by and large, it doesn't arise with mm. other disciplines. Now, I'm curious, do you think that consensus may not be a good thing because we could be you know, wrong about the answer or because something about consensus intrinsically is bad, even if we were correct on the answer? Yeah, I, look, I think it's a mixture of both. So uh, the second one might be a kind of temporary thing. Mm. Uh, I, I think it is genuinely premature to say that we've reached you know, the answer on on a lot of those questions, you know, there, there's still good arguments going on. There are still smart people coming up with very, you know, very interesting considerations the other way and so on. So it, it's, mm -hmm. no matter how strong I think some of the arguments are, sure. it is difficult to say, okay, we really have achieved consensus here. And particularly when some of the answers are, are kind of clastic, mm. right, you, you know, um, the answers I go to those two particular big questions, does libertarian free will exist? Well, I say no. Does God exist? I say no. 
does an objectively binding morality exist? I say no. Well, those are all like kind of plastic answers for a lot of people. Mm. Well, given that there are smart people putting different answers to the questions and with, you know, rigorous arguments or attempts at rigorous argument, I think it would be premature to, to declare the case closed. Uh, it's not just, though, that it's premature. It is a socially interesting question as to whether uh, we can declare things closed on those issues. And I'm not sure what to say here. Mm. But with issues that large and which have answers that are potentially so iconoclastic and which are so threatening of people's identities even, you do just have to tread very warily in this area. Now, that's not going to mean I'm going to stop writing, you know, the things I write, uh, but, but I think you have to tread very warily before you say, well, we've got a legitimate disciplinary consensus here, and yeah, this is just the answer from now on. Uh, we will study morality from now on, <laughs> on the basis that it's, you know, a kind of social technology. It's not something um, that transcends, you know, mm. human desires, institutions. Uh, but it contributes pragmatically to us achieving certain ends that we have because we're the creatures. Yeah, the, the kind of answer I'd, I'd give, I, would, I, I think you could kind of turn the study of morality into a science that accepts that as a paradigm. But, yeah. and, and I argue that in, a, in another book that I wrote called The Mystery of Moral Authority, but I would still feel a little uncomfortable if philosophy as a discipline purported to do that. Okay. I, you know, I think I generally agree with you there. Because um, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I think a lot of intuitions might be pulled by the specific examples given. Like, you know, I personally would be very, very happy if we never discussed, you know, whether there's any good reason to believe God exists ever again. That question's right. closed for me, you know, or whether yeah. libertarian free will exists. That question's closed for me. Um, but but you're right. It would be sort of strange if the discipline never spoke about that again. But... You know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I guess it's sort of paradoxical because I do think those questions are in some sense legitimately closed. So may, mm. maybe my mm. thinking isn't consistent there. I don't know. And maybe mine isn't either. You know, there, there's <laughs> a kind of discomfort there. Yeah. Uh, yeah apart, from the, apart from the issue that some answers might be premature, there's a kind of discomfort there that's hard to articulate. And it's a little hard even to justify. You know, I'm, I'm not even sure that I'm yeah. right in having that discomfort. But I do have the discomfort. Sure, sure. Yeah, we may not have good reason actually to to have the discomfort because I guess, you know, I mean, just just thinking, you know, I guess you could have encountered biologists that had the same discomfort about evolution, you know, for instance, mm. but that's not a good reason why we shouldn't have just, you know, accepted the theory and moved on. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, again, heliocentrism, there must have sure. been a lot of people back in, um, you know, the early 17th century yeah, who were pretty worried about, <laughs> you know, that is there to be coarse, you know, it, it tended to undermine the authority of the Bible and hence the church, etc., etc. But, but the empirical arguments in favour of heliocentrism seem, you know, pretty compelling. 
Sure. Uh, yeah. Now, as it happened, that, I mean, they didn't become really compelling until a long time after Galileo thought they did. He was actually wrong about some things, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but but they were starting to look pretty compelling, and yet that was a bit of a worry. So so yes, is it the same thing? Now, with heliocentrism or with evolution, I suppose part of the answer might be those do seem more empirically tractable. Yeah. Whereas if I say that, um, yeah, morality is what I just described as being a kind yeah. of a kind of technology, and you know, we have a kind of illusion that it's something more than that. You know, we rationalise it in other ways, and we're socialised to believe it's binding us in a way that really it, it isn't. Yeah. Although I make those claims, I make arguments for that. They're not necessarily, you know, they're not really the same kinds of empirical arguments that Galileo was making or that Darwin was making. Mm. So, so perhaps there's a difference there, but it's it's hard, it's hard to know just how much light there is between the kinds of arguments I'm making and, and those scientific arguments. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely not defeasible in the same way that those two would be. I mean, I don't know, mm. for mm. instance, what we could could say would disconfirm the theory um right besides you know maybe something like logical consistency maybe something like that um but then you know i mean you'll get philosophers that discount the the relevance of logical consistency on some things too and it just sort of sure you know it i i don't think we'll ever be lacking in argumentation in that sense but but yeah Mm. I i take your point i don't know actually how analogous is and and um you know i think it was in chapter nine Stuart brock actually questions what what criteria could even be fitting um for for progress of that kind right right look what would disconfirm some of these arguments i i I suppose would be a compelling argument for a different point of view Mm. but but how you come up with truly compelling arguments on something (laughs) like say Mm. the yeah, the objectively binding nature of morality is another thing. I mean, I don't believe anyone has managed ever to do it. And often what is said, well, is we've just got to start somewhere and, you know, we, we start with, with some set of assumptions like that, you know. It, it, but, you know, you look at Kant or whoever may be characterised as having attempted to make arguments, mm. you know, for, for the you know, the, as I said, the objectively binding nature of morality. You know, but, and the arguments inevitably come apart. You know, we don't have you know, what I would at least consider a successful argument for that positive claim, you know, mm-hmm. you know, for the claim opposite to one I'm making. But, but you know, if, if someone came up with that, it would disconfirm. But that's not the same as coming up with some kind of empirical observation mm. that would be disconfirming. It's not like finding you know, fossil rabbits in... I don't know, the Cretaceous or, or sure. the, the Cambrian or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it doesn't um, pin you down quite as hard as discovering a, you know, a rabbit in, the, in, a, in a, an era that it shouldn't have been would. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, always, there's always room to sort of, whether it's, whether it's a cognitive bias or not, wiggle out of some you know, argument put forth. Well, that's right. There's always some, there's always some premise that can be denied sure. know, in, in, in arguments over these sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. 
Now, whether that's somehow defining a philosophy, I, I, I don't know, and that's a, another <laughs> issue. But it's certainly with a lot of the questions that we think of now as philosophical, mm. it's difficult to put an argument uh, without premises that someone, without too much trouble, can deny. I think David Chalmers makes a point like that in his, his article yeah. on the subject. You, know, you, can find, you can find some way without too much discomfort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, there, I mean, there's this weird phenomenon, and and it's probably more American than any other country. But you know, if you just you know simply by asking a question, you will guarantee that you will have some sort of a disagreement. Um, you know, by the very nature of just asking the question, you'll you'll you know if, uh, you could we could win money for the rest of you know the universe's time at betting on that. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, to what extent that is. I, I, it's obviously a positive thing in some sense, but I think it's also obviously negative in some other senses. Yeah. Look, America seems to be very polarized politically more than it ever was, and more than perhaps most other countries, even in the in the Anglosphere. But that even if you are teaching a class of say first year or second year undergraduate students in a philosophy sure. course, and you ask them to put their hands up. <laughs> on say the answer you know, to one of the trolley problem sort of cases. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get it as a vision. So yeah, maybe eighty percent will pull the lever to shift the you know, the out of control trolley so it runs over one person, not five, but twenty percent will will say the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't know. It's very hard with these sort of questions to get real it's, consensus on. on it's true. That's true. That's true. What what role do you think? And this is something that you know I've I've really been thinking about as I prepare you know to apply to grad schools about the the hyper specialization that you're sort of pushed towards. Um, I think you know as you move from you know an undergraduate education to a graduate education and eventually to teaching. I think we're. And, and obviously, you know, you would be able to speak to this far more, but it seems like we're being funneled towards, you know, you mentioned counterexamples on counterexamples of Gettier cases towards, yeah. you know, very narrow, narrow, narrow questions that aren't the reasons why, you know, someone like me fell in love with the discipline in the first place. Mm-hmm. Or why it's important from the point of view of a, an educated public. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think that is worrying because I think we, you know, we really are in a sense or up to a point here in order to address those anxieties or, the, or that curiosity mm-hmm. that the educated public has if we are funneled into more and more technical mm. and, and seemingly uh, intractable uh, you know, problems you know, that we're discussing in a very, you know, a, a elite group of journals and so on. I, I think that is a worry about where the philosophy is doing what it was there for in the first place. Yeah. Uh, part of the pressure is every academic discipline is pressured to follow the model of the sciences where that kind of hyper-specialisation probably is appropriate. Mm. You know, as the sciences discover more and more detail about the natural world, it's quite natural for them to devolve you know, disciplines and sub-disciplines and sub-sub-disciplines and research <laughs> programs and sub-research programs. It's a huge professionalised effort, almost like a military effort, if you like, in <laughs> order to, you know, to, to, to gain that kind of knowledge relating to questions about the natural world that are tractable, but there's just a lot of them. You know, there's just a lot to know. You know, the more we know, the more we 
No, there's more. That seems like quite a good model for the sciences and the payoff for the public that eventually comes back, uh, yeah, apart from popular science books, which are interesting, but the big payoff is technology. Mm. The, the relationship between science and technology is now so important. But if we as philosophers are trying to give payoff back to the public, it, it's going to have to take a very different form. You know, the whole the whole task insofar as it relates to what we're doing you know, in a society or a civilization or the world is really now quite different from what the sciences have been doing for the last whatever it is, four hundred years. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when I think of, you know, examples of um of, of philosophers who really are, they have a, you know, a strong foothold in what's happening in the real world. People like Peter Singer, for instance, or mm. Will McCaskill, or Nick Bostrom. Mm. I just, I, you know, clearly, I think it's sort of like a, a tension that I don't know exactly what the right balance is. Because clearly, you know, Singer, for instance, is an a far more of an expert on ethics than he would be on, you know, maybe feminist philosophy or some other some other area of philosophy, right? right. But at the same time, um, you know, he's obviously not, you know, too far down the rabbit hole of of the literature to the point where he's not able to have the influence on the world that he has. And I just don't know you know, personally speaking, because it seems like, you know, obviously you do want to have areas of philosophy that you're more naturally interested in and, and more learned in. But, you know, I, I, I guess I'm fearing going too far down that to the point where your entire career is consumed with counterexamples of counterexamples, you know? Right. Fortunately, it's not something that particularly impinges on my life now. Yeah. Because I'm in a situation where I'm not applying to graduate school, I'm, I'm <laughs> much more at the other end of my, my you know, the very strange career I've had. And I now have you know, the luxury that while I'm not rich, I have enough money to kind of get by. <laughs> and, you know, I don't really have to try to get more and more senior jobs or anything like that. And I can then be looking around for publishers who are prepared to publish stuff that is more accessible to a broader general public. Now, I think it's a good thing that we do that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I'm doing it. But you know, a lot of people are not in a position where they can do that because they are pushed into this model that I think is more appropriate for the sciences. Yeah. Do you? I, I'm just worried about sort of if going through that model almost sort of... Um, you know, destroys or removes people's ability when they get to the end of the tenure track, you know, and they and they get yeah. tenure and then they can turn around and say, wow, now I can pursue, you know, whatever I want, uh, you know, works for the public or my own sort of, you know, philosophical projects. I just wonder if after years and years of doing the narrow publishing, does that sort of rob your ability almost to 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 make those really, you know, publicly accessible works? I don't know. Yes, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it would, it would be interesting to talk to a whole bunch of people who are much younger than I am, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but who are perhaps deep enough into their careers. You know, they might be in their early 30s, people that sort of age, sure. um, and, and get their views about that, that sort of topic. It's always interesting when something a bit like this comes up on Brian Leiter's blog, and sometimes he'll throw his blog open to, um, yeah, to discussion. You, 
I, I guess you and your audience are aware of Brian Leiter's Leiter Reports blog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you'll get a lot of people who make points a bit like this, but you will also get people who take the views that, you know, philosophy before Frege, say, was all junk and, you know, we should just throw it all out. <laughs> and what's important is the kind of, you know, you know narrow, specialised, ultra-professionalised, yeah, kind of the rigorous study of language, et cetera, et cetera, mm. that sort of characterises philosophy as a discipline in that kind of post-Frager, post-early Bertrand Russell mould. Mm. So, so I don't know. The, the experience of people saying that must be quite different. But it yeah. doesn't sort of speak to me. You know, I, I do want to be addressing problems that are of you know, some public concern, I suppose. That's that's kind of my background. It's kind of my temperament. Mm-hmm. The the you know, in thinking about that kind of question, though, the one the one concern I really, really do understand, and I share some affinity for, is, you know, it's almost sort of like a you know a like a like a physics envy of a type, where, you know, I think the impulse to sort of um, retreat or seclude some advanced philosophical discussions in the jargon and in the technical language is is an understandable mechanism against you know the immediate access of people who don't really know much of anything about philosophy right if we kept everything in very very basic terms um because you know i feel like it's just it's easier and we were talking about this earlier to disagree with you know any philosophical paper that you like as long as the language is accessible enough but that's not really possible in something like you know organic chemistry people need to learn the language and the terminology uh in order to disagree and people you know by and large are probably too lazy to do that but it's really easy to say no no i know that i have free will i could i could choose to do anything else right now you know something like that um so i share that concern i understand it Mm. Well, well, I mean, the sciences have put up barriers for reasons that are quite justifiable. Yeah, you know, it's not that they set out to put up barriers. Yeah. It's that there is just a lot of stuff that is not knowable, you know, without the kinds of methods that have been used by science, the kind of instruments that they've devised, the kind of experiments they've been able to devise, the phenomena that they've postulated and which, you know, not observable without those instruments are not observable at all. The whole of new stuff actually seems to exist you know, entities and forces and so on actually seem to exist and they need names and on and on it goes they're they're creating a language which describes a real world that was not accessible you know without the methods used by science mm. now i don't know that philosophy is really doing the same thing you know it's not closely analogous to that when it throws up you know, a whole lot of this language yeah now now, sometimes it might be, I mean, in logic, mm. yeah, there, there are concepts yeah, that, that are developed as logic becomes you know, richer and we, we learn more. And, we, we, and logic, of course, yeah, does make progress. I, I, I think it's pretty clear that logic does make progress. I think that, you know, semantics and pragmatics... You know, the, that, that kind of study of language makes progress. We know, we know a lot more from philosophers, not just from you know, sort of linguistic scholars. We know, we know a lot more now than we did you know, not many decades ago about language. So, 
So some of the terms that we use in those areas of philosophy that pretty clearly do make progress yeah. are needed and do relate to phenomena that are fairly clearly there. A lot of the time, though, yeah, as I'm, as I'm <laughs> reading philosophy from outside those areas, areas that I expect would be more accessible, you know, I, I even you know, more struggle to get my head around some of the terminology if I'm not you know, really up to date with whatever's been discussed in that area, or mm. by the urge to put uh, arguments into, you know, predicate calculus. And, sure. Uh, yeah. And sometimes that seems completely unnecessary. You know, I then, I mean, I... I studied this stuff too and taught it, but I, I then decode it because it's not all that <laughs> transparent to me sure. as, a, as people who are really fluent in it. And I think, well, why was it necessary even to formalise that argument? You know, the argument yeah. makes perfectly good sense without being formalised. So what's that doing? It, it is putting up a barrier to people who don't have that kind of background, but I think it's also a little bit... I don't know, I don't like to be harsh to my colleagues, but it seems a bit like posturing, you know. I can yeah. formalise this argument, whether it needs to be formalised or not. But what's, yeah. the, what's <laughs> the point of that? Yeah, yeah. it's it's funny that you pointed out. I mean, it it is almost sort of like a task that justifies itself in that sense. You know, well, why... why you know, if we're going to uncode it anyway to to actually go over it, why did we need to, to code it in the first place? It does seem mm. a bit... A, bit you know kind of wavy of hey look at me i can do this a little bit yeah a little bit like that or at least saying well if you have any doubts you know you're, you're quibbling <laughs> with oil but the sense of, sure well here i'm going to put it beyond doubt <laughs> by by formal sure. I, I don't know maybe it's a mixture of all of those things but but it does seem in many many cases that's that's not necessary to write in that way, that you know, the argument would have been just as convincing and the, you know, what's being argued would be just as plausible without adopting that sort of style. Yeah. And I guess, to be honest, you know, my, my understanding and, and to whatever degree I have it, affinity for that concern, I think really stems from a phenomenon that has been more common maybe for for people of my generation than of past philosophers where i think we're sort of seeing you know the the rise of these um you know sort of like pop philosophers in a way yeah. um you know people like you know jordan peterson is recent um, um ben shapiro is is analogous to that maybe yeah. um sam harris i guess yeah I, mean, I think sam is maybe a bit better than some of these other people but still he's <laughs> sure. doing the same sort of thing and mm -hmm. and he will be scathing in an unnecessary and unfair way of you know actual professional philosophers at times i agree with that yeah and it's just you know i i i genuinely think that you know maybe i'm being a little hypocritical here but it's it's just that you know when i see someone um you know for instance like like jordan peterson talk about deeply philosophical questions, it's it's kind of clear to me that he hasn't read a lot of what I would deem as necessary literature to be mm. talking about those mm. things, right? Mm. And I'm sure that obviously, you know, my own cognitive biases come into play because if he was saying things that I agreed with, I probably wouldn't think that. But, you know, that point aside, I I genuinely am concerned about the harm of sort of, you know, in the Socratic sense, 
thinking you know more than you know about a subject. Mm. And I think mm. philosophy is very prone to that miscalculation of your own expertise. Mm. Well, Peterson doubtless knows a lot about Jungian psychotherapy. He doubtless knows a lot about mythography. Mm. Um, and maybe some other things that he knows quite a lot about. But, but yes, if you're starting from the foundation in... You know, in those disciplines and maybe some other knowledge of the world is picked up. Mm. And then thinking that you can kind of barge into other areas just based on that and set everyone straight, you know. <laughs> shape up, he tells all these young people. Yeah. But he also yeah. kind of tells people from other disciplines to shape up because he knows the answer from that kind of disciplinary basis. That, I think, has a certain, you know, almost a certain arrogance about it. Again, I don't want to be unfair to Jordan Peterson because I think he cops a lot of flack that is over the top and unnecessary and unfair sure. to him. But, but there is that element that we find in him of a kind of not knowing his own limitations, not, not kind of knowing what he doesn't know. Yeah. And we should all, I mean, we all... I'll speak for myself. I'm sure I do this at times too, right? I'm sure course, yeah. most people do, but at least I'm aware of it. At least I know <laughs> that it's some a trap that I can fall into, and I try I try hard not to fall into it. I try hard to be at least fair to to people who who, who do maybe know more than I do about you know, some area where I have an interest, and then you know maybe yeah. to check some other sources. Yeah, you know, there, there's. There's a sense that some of these people are not really doing their homework in that way, and perhaps, perhaps there isn't yet just a bit of arrogance about it. They feel they don't need to. Yeah, and I just, I, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of worried about that in particular because I see it as far more of a danger for you know my generation that was sort of, um, you know, we grew up as the internet grew up, you know, and and mm. that sort of popularization of philosophy i don't think was possible in the same way before the internet obviously where you can so watch way, yeah. no no and I, I i just think that there is a a really dangerous trap of watching you know two or three hours of of you know jordan peterson lectures and thinking mm -hmm. that you can duke it out on the same level as you know an oxford philosopher on something mm -hmm. and it's just and, and you know but again to 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 play devil's advocate to that point, you don't want to also fall into an appeal to authority. But I, you know, I just, I, I am very suspicious of um, how readily and how rapidly people of, of sort of my generation are comfortable with forming opinions on really, really complicated stuff. Mm. And I just well, don't know. Right. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that people of my generation have, <laughs> Probably encourage this yeah, in all sorts of ways. You know, yeah. We've, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that we created things like the internet, you know, <laughs> sure. we we've had certain attitudes to education and 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 so on that that have probably encouraged this. It, it is a problem if people are running off to look at YouTube videos rather than actually reading a book. You know, there's such a resistance it seems to yeah. actually reading books these days yeah that is a concern now now that said perhaps the people who are now watching the jordan peterson videos wouldn't have been you know, engaging with anything at all if, you know, mm -hmm. even at that level so so again we we don't want to be unfair to it or say there's no merit to it 
and perhaps there's a fair bit to say in Peterson's favour. You know, some of the fact that he's copped, as I say, is unfair, and he seems to have handled it quite well at times. Mm-hmm. But that it is a worry that someone like him can become a kind of sage, I guess, you know, kind yeah. of sage figure <laughs> to follow, rather than someone who really is doing the homework and you know, has the kind of kind of epistemic modesty, I suppose, to, to know they have yeah. to do more homework. So there's there's always going to be pros and cons, but but we have to try to be aware of the cons. Yeah, yeah. I mean that phrase epistemic modesty really hits the nail on the head for me um, because I think, you know, honestly, having just some philosopher uh, or philosophy professors um, who, you know, just honestly, you know, were were huge reasons that inspired me to actually go into mm. this discipline. The thing that. I just I I was so floored by is how how great a wealth of information they can have and still genuinely want to know what I think about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just it's it's so beautiful and I and I want to emulate that. Um, it's yeah. so inspiring to me. Yeah. And I just yeah I don't I don't know if that's really a you know a common feature in in pop philosophy. No, but it is something that does come through. I mean, we've had a lot of criticisms of the discipline in this sure. discussion, but but, yeah. it, but it's something that, at its best, the discipline does show maybe more than the other disciplines that I've encountered. Yeah. Uh, the, the the other place where you do get it a bit is in the law, because there's such an emphasis on being able to argue both sides of almost mm. anything. Mm. But but it is something that philosophy, as its best. Can provide, and I'd, I'd hate to see it lose that. I, I feel there are some pressures out there for it to lose that. Mm. But you know, it, it's it's one of the things about philosophy that can make you love it. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. I I also wonder, you know, how much of this is is, you know, a really simplistic um, result from you know, trying to justify funding, honestly, um, you know, where if we can, if we can go to the dean of a university and show them, you know, a, a logic algorithm, uh, you know, right. for, for decoding things, you know, to it, to an untrained eye, oh, wow, you know, that does seem worth funding. Whereas, you know, if we were just showing him, you know, I mean, look at this amazing work by Nietzsche or something, you know, it might not, it might not have the same, you know, punch uh, to, mm. to securing funding. And in, um, in the public higher education systems, there's such a pressure that comes from the government to yeah. be delivering more technology, yeah. very largely technology, and re- delivering jobs in technology. Yeah. So that, that creates a huge pressure on all of the, all of the humanities, really. Yeah, to to be able to justify itself, but it, but it goes back more deeply than that. There is this physics envy thing, mm-hmm. which which you know maybe affects even some of the sciences where it shouldn't. You know, I, I don't know, but certainly affects other areas of the humanities that we have to kind of emulate their model. We have to have this kind of hyper specialization. Yeah, you know, we have to be publishing in journals of certain kinds. Uh, those journals should publish work that uses a certain kind of language that's not accessible to people you know, mm. from outside. Um, for whatever reason, we use this language, whether it's as a barrier or as a way of you know, preening to each other, you know, the worst or mm-hmm. what it is. You know, we're, we're, you know, in all of those disciplines, yeah, there's that kind of pressure 
to, to emulate kind of the superficial trappings of the sciences. Yeah. When what the disciplines are really about, you may not, you have a kind of, a kind of policies and a kind of, you know, demands and justifications behind it that the scientists have. They might have different ones, but they don't have those ones. Sure. Yeah, and it seems like there is also this sort of, um, you know, I, I recently read um, uh, In Praise of Idleness by Bertrand Russell, and it seems like we have, you know, because he, he talks about how we're sort of, you know, in this current day, and it's funny, you know, he's writing that in, what, 1935 or something like that. Right. He, he's writing about, you know, how in this current day we have this obsession with incrementalism and, and progress, and it seems like that is a danger um, to philosophy as well, where it's always, you know, posed in the questions of incrementalism. Well, what can this do for this other discipline? Or what can mm. this do, you know, for this other area of inquiry? And I don't think we stop to say, well, you know, wait, what about the questions that actually make the other technology, you know, worth having? Like, what does it mean to have a good life, mm. for instance? Mm. You know, and I, mm. I just, you know... You know, the writing of people like, you know, Susan Wolf, um, for instance, is just, you know, I, I love reading that kind of stuff. And yeah, me too. I love I, it's, work, yeah. it's it's amazing. And and honestly, you know, you know, reading these works and, and talking to people like yourself, you know, that is the end in and of itself for me. And it's not an incremental, you know, what can I bring to this other, um, you know, area? And it just it seems like. Sometimes we kind of miss the forest for the trees in that sense. Mm. Well, that's the criticism you know, in the book. That's the criticism that Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay are making, yeah. or yeah. one of their strands of criticism of the state of the discipline, that you know, it really should be about things that people care about, like the nature of you know, what, it, what it is to lead a good life, you know, mm. what, what kinds of... You know, virtues and so on do you need what what's that life kind of like what does it mean at the political level yeah those are issues that people out there actually care about that people are anxious about people are intrigued about and that philosophers have something something to say that has a whole tradition behind it and you're going to have a kind of rigor behind it not necessarily the sort of you know extreme uh display of rigor that we were talking about a little while ago, but we're kind of rigor about it, and we, you know, we have something to contribute there. So Peter would like to pull us back to that. Now, now again, Peter Bacchus is someone who cops a fair bit of flack from from other people within the discipline from elsewhere, but I think he's making a pretty strong point when he he says that. I mean, there may still be a great deal about contemporary philosophy that that's attractive and useful and you know and and, and lovable, as we were saying. Yeah. But but there is at least some tendency. I was going to say for people to forget, but people even almost be pushed away yeah. from you know, larger discussion of those sorts of issues and communication with the public about those sorts of issues that are of public concern. And and I mean I do try. I mean I I, I aim for rigor too. I aim to do my homework. I aim to do all those things that I've been talking about that we should do. But I do want to talk to the public. So I want my work to be as accessible as possible and I want it to, as much as possible, touch on things that the public are actually worried about. Now, yeah. it, it, it probably, probably my work gets a little bit technical at times because, yeah, I'm, I have that training too. And sometimes the issues are genuinely hard and sometimes you do have to grapple 
with you know what's already out there, which, which can be hard. I mean, if you, you've got to grapple with cards, even though cards sure. are very difficult. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but you've got to try to do it. Mm-hmm. Or there's this whole body of stuff you should be taking into account that you're not taking into account. So inevitably, mm-hmm. yes, some of my work is going to be harder, you know, just, just for a, a person with a general pretty good education but not a philosophy background. It's going to be harder to pick up and read than Jordan Peterson's latest <laughs> book might be, right? Sure. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I still want to communicate with the public and try to be as accessible as the subject matter you know, permits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think where that leads us is that's what I'd like to encourage, you know, in other philosophers as well, if I can. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And um, and I see we're actually coming up on the, the one hour mark. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. But I have a few um, just final kind of rapid fire questions um, just that are, are really of interest to me, um, you know, from a from a philosopher to someone who's hopefully uh, trying to become one. Um so what I was just curious, um, you know, are there any recent examples of how philosophy has affected the way that you actually act or live your life? Oh, that's a hard one. That's a very hard. It is. <laughs> how I actually live my life. Um, I don't know because often I'm like every other academic philosopher, I'm often spending my time criticising other philosophers. <laughs> of course. Rather than really taking them on as role models mm. for, you know, for, for how I live my life. What, what, what inspires me more is people who inspire me to address certain topics or to write in certain ways or think about certain mm. things. I've been affected like, like many people you know, over the last several decades by things like environmentalism, by you know, very um, close consciousness of things like climate change. Mm. But I can't honestly say that it was philosophers who mm. put me on to worrying about those sorts of issues, which do affect how I live mm-hmm. my life. So, so <laughs> that's maybe saying that, you know, that philosophers aren't doing the job for me as much as you might like them to. <laughs> sure, I hope sure. I'm doing the job for someone. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, how, you know, uh, what and um, and why do you enjoy the things that you do as a, as a professional philosopher? And what do, you, what do you enjoy the most about it and what do you dislike the most about it? Hmm. Look, what I enjoy is just learning stuff. I, I enjoy tackling problems, trying to sort out things that puzzle me or that I find you know, causes a certain amount of anxiety. I'd really like to understand um, you know, what liberalism is you know, historically and in the world we live in today and why it seems to be under threat and what aspects are under threat and what its future might be and whether it should be replaced by something else. You know, I, I actually want to answer questions like that. And as yeah. I study them deeply, you know, I, I read the material, I dig into the history behind ideas, which, which is something that fascinates through the history behind ideas, and I expand and deepen my knowledge. Yeah, that's something I really enjoy. And if, having absorbed a lot of that and synthesised it, I can then produce a package where I can give some of that to other people. I mean, that's something I find very satisfying. Mm. And, and 
what I find really satisfying is those rare occasions, yeah, rarer than I'd like them to be, but those occasions when someone comes back to me and says, look, I, I read your book or I read something else you wrote. And, yeah, that, that was great. You know, it, it's, it's made a difference now I think about this topic and perhaps even how I go about my life. You know, if I've had that sort of impact that I just said not too many philosophers have had on me. But when that does happen, that is a really great feeling and you know it does happen some of the time now if i were a very technical philosopher writing these very technical articles mm. on technical areas like say the gettier <laughs> i would not get that kind of kick out of things because i'd not get people from the public talking to me in that way I'd, I'd doubtless get other satisfactions sure but yeah the particular satisfactions that i get relate to the particular topics that I tackle, the reasons why I tackle them, mm. the kind of ways I go about tackling them and the kind of results that they can have uh, you know, more widely with interlocutors and, and readers, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. And one of the frustrations is when I see people arguing about all kinds of stuff where I think, oh, they're reinventing the wheel. If only they'd read something <laughs> I wrote where all yeah. these concepts. Yep, yep. Final question. What would you give as a piece of advice to someone like me who wants to enter the discipline professionally? Oh, probably the wrong person to ask that. <laughs> uh, look, if you want to do well in the profession, I think the thing to do is get a, a placement in a really top quality program. Yeah, you know, with, with top quality people around you and to learn from them, you have to soak up everything you can from them, to take their advice, see how they go about things. That, that's probably what you should do, but it's not something that I've really done. I mean, I, I did my PhD at Monash, which, you know, which is a good program, you had know, some great people there, but, but I have not had the kind of life, the kind of career where I can say, I know what you have to do to be a <laughs> yeah, academic philosopher and be, you know, be highly successful within the discipline. I'm not the right person for that. <laughs> I think the advice I've just given is correct, but it's sure. I should get more than anybody. Sure. Well, to, uh, to close, um, please, if you could tell people where they can learn more about your work and, uh, and specifically your new book, The Tyranny of Opinion. Okay. Uh, well, I do have a, a Twitter feed. You can just look for my name there, Russell Blackford, and you'll find me. I have a website. Again, if you just search mm -hmm. uh, my name, you'll find yeah, my own website. You'll also find my website, University of Newcastle, which has a little bit less information, though um, the other website, my private website, is much messier. Yeah. So, so maybe have a look at both of those. And those will list my books. If you go to Amazon and search on my name, you know, and you find my Amazon author site, it sets out all of the books that you know, I have published. And I have a little screen about myself which tells you about them. So, so yes, I'm online. I'm on Amazon author site. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook if you want to track me down there. You know, I have a site at the University of Newcastle. I have a our personal website. You can find all of that online. Great. And as for the latest book, well, yeah, it's available in all the obvious ways on Amazon and through all good bookshops, which will probably order it in if they don't actually have it in stock. 
you know, it's published by Bloomsbury, by the academic arm of Bloomsbury, but Bloomsbury's quite a big publisher. You know, they publish, most famously, they publish J.K. Rowling. Uh, that's where probably they get a large proportion of their money that yeah. comes in. Not, not from me. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's published by a quite sizable uh, publisher. It has a certain amount of muscle and you can track it down on yeah. Amazon or, or even on Bloomsbury's own site. Yeah, excellent. Well, Russell, you've been very generous with your time and I've really, really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure to talk to you too. That was great. Take care. Well, thank you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope that you found that as valuable as I did. Like I said at the introduction, um, I, I really got a lot out of speaking to Russell. He was very generous with his time and with his insight. And if you want to check out uh, any of Russell's work, I will leave uh, links to all of his affiliated websites and information in the description below. Um, and if you want to support this show and what I'm doing, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can find that link in the description below as well. And if you want to support me in non-monetary ways, you can also do that by sharing this show on Twitter or social media. Uh, you can rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can like this video or subscribe uh, via YouTube or RSS feed. You can discuss uh, my episode uh, today or any other episode on your own show. And you can connect me uh, with guests or recommend topics to cover. And you can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And all of this, of course, is in the description below. So thank you for watching. And as always, um, keep struggling to escape the cave. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.